Our Father, we come to you as people who are hungry and who need to be nourished and corrected and instructed by your word. And Father, as I studied our passage this week, I have never felt less capable of of doing so. And I'm reminded that it is only by your grace that cleanses me through faith in Christ that I can stand here and preach your word. So I pray, Lord, that your word would convict us this week. I pray that it would instruct us, that it would drive out every sinful desire, every sinful ambition that we have, that we may see our our great, great need for Christ, but that we may also see that he is great enough to meet every need. May he be glorified in this time. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. If, uh, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 2. Um, a couple weeks ago, uh, when, I, when I preached out of this same passage, John chapter 2, verses 12 to 17, it was obviously something that, uh, that had, had tugged all week at my heartstrings, and, uh, and this week is, is really no different. Um, and so as we continue in our study of the gospel according to John today, we're, we're once again going to be looking at what is really the first cleansing of the temple in Jerusalem, which is recorded here in John chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. And let's just start by remembering that there are two occasions in which Jesus cleanses the temple. There's the occasion that's right here in John's testimony, which was at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. He doesn't have all of his disciples with him yet. Uh, he, he is just beginning his public ministry. And then we see him do the same thing again. He cleanses the temple again uh, at the end of his ministry, which is recorded in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But a couple weeks ago, what we saw is we looked at this passage, this very famous, very well-known passage that we've probably all read a hundred times or more. Uh, One of the, the things that we saw is that God cares about the way that he is worshiped. God cares deeply about the way, the manner, the attitudes with which he is worshipped. He is not to be worshipped casually. He's not to be approached flippantly. He is not to be worshipped as you and I see fit, as as we see fit. Rather, he is to be worshipped as he sees fit. And yet what we saw a couple weeks ago when we studied this lesson, this passage, and, and the lesson that we had was that the modern church, whose purpose is really the same purpose that the temple had, which is to, to stand as a beacon of truth in the darkness, a place where people can be brought into right fellowship, right standing with God. And so we saw that much of the modern church in our culture is deeply, deeply committed to the practice of pragmatism and as such is deeply compromised in her faithfulness to the mission and purpose given to her by God in his holy and infallible word. And that is certainly a legitimate application of this text. 
that the church overall constantly needs to be guarding herself and cleansing any impurities that walk through the door, that come into God's house. That's certainly an application that worldly ideologies need to be driven out. See, it's great for a church denomination or or for even a local church to say, you know, we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. Everybody says they believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. You know who else believes in the inerrancy of Scripture? Satan. Satan believes in the inerrancy of Scripture. So, So maybe you take it one step further and you say, well, we also believe in the infallibility of Scripture. Awesome. Don't you think Satan does too? Of course he does. And so does every demon in existence. You, you must affirm these things, the inerrancy and the infallibility of Scripture, absolutely. But you must affirm at least one other thing, and that is the sufficiency of Scripture. And when I talk about the sufficiency of Scripture, what I mean is that God has given us every single thing that we need for spiritual life, for spiritually flourishing in life and in our walk with Christ in His Word. It's all in His Word. We don't need anything. We don't need any ideology. We don't need any philosophy. We don't need any position. Anything that is not found in Scripture. The pragmatism that is so prevalent in so much of the church in our day and age is built on the idea that if we want to win the world, if we want the world to come through our doors, we must look just like the world. We must be conformed to the ways of the world. We must woo the world with the world's own ideologies and philosophies. And very few, if any, would say, well, yeah, that's exactly what we're trying to do. Of course they wouldn't. Nobody would say, yeah, we're we're using worldly philosophies to, to pronounce Christ or to proclaim Christ. No, and yet it's impossible Impossible to deny how prevalent this type of thinking is in our day and age. And I think it boils down to people having the view that Scripture is not sufficient. It is so great to be back with you guys this week. I had such a, an amazing time at the, the conference last week in Atlanta. Um, it was a, a total shock to everybody to find out that Paul Washer was going to be preaching. Uh, that, was, that was amazing. If you don't know who he is, he's a great teacher. I would encourage you to get familiar with his ministry. Listen to some of his, his sermons. He's a, a fantastic minister and a missionary uh, who almost died of a heart attack last year, and nobody was really sure if he was going to be back to preaching. Um, but he did. Um, but it's been a slow recovery. But while he preached, he told a parable that I want to paraphrase for you. And it goes something like this. Imagine that there was a king. He was king over all the land, and he chose, out of all the land, he chose a bride for himself. And he dressed her in the finest linens, and he loved her, and she was so beautiful just as he made her to him. He was, she was so beautiful to him. But the king had to go away for a time, and so he gave instructions to his stewards to keep her, to watch over her, to keep her safe and protect her. 
But after the king had left, the servants started believing that they had to do something with the king's bride to make her more appealing to the world. And so they stripped her of her beautiful linens, they dressed her up like a prostitute, and they changed her hair, they, they caked on makeup on her face, defiling her elegance, all in an attempt to make her more appealing to those who hated her, thinking that if they just changed her appearance... Surely the people would love her. Now let me ask you, what do you think will happen to those people, those servants, when the king returns and sees what they have done with his bride? Would you not expect him to unleash his wrath on those unfaithful servants who disobeyed him and defiled his bride? To punish them, to humiliate them, to destroy them. And yet this is exactly what the modern church does when it tries to win the world in a way that God has not instructed. This is what the religious leaders in Jesus' day had done with the temple. And so as Jesus came to the temple to uphold and fulfill the demands of the law, which required him to observe the Passover feast, we see just the slightest glimpse of the king's wrath. Worldliness had invaded the temple, it had come into the temple, and it had defiled the worship, and it had destroyed the beauty of the temple and the purpose of the temple. Remember that. Remember that as the Lord of the temple, Jesus is the one who has the authority to determine what is and what is not acceptable within it. Let me say that again. Jesus, as the Lord of the temple, has all of the authority to determine what is and what is not acceptable within it. That's the point of this passage that we saw a couple weeks ago, and we're going to be looking at it again today, but we're going to see that there is a much different, much deeper application of it this time. So this is what we read in God's holy, inspired, infallible, and sufficient word in verses 12 to 17 of chapter 2 of the gospel according to John. It says, after this, he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables, and he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. As the Lord of the temple... Jesus has the authority to determine what is and what is not acceptable within it. And he has the authority to drive out what does not belong in it. As the authority of the church, Jesus has that authority. And he's told us what he wants in the church. His word is sufficient. There's that word again. It's sufficient. Burn it in your brain. God's word is sufficient. His word is sufficient to instruct our conduct in every single aspect of life, of course, but that includes especially the way that God is worshipped. 
And yet, let me give you the verse that summarizes so much of what we see in almost any church that you go to. And every church has this inclination, has this tendency. But there's one verse that summarizes it. Are you ready for it? Judges chapter 21, verse 25. In those days there was no king in Israel, and so everyone did what was right in his own eyes. As I was out of town at the conference this past week, I had a, a really wonderful conversation with a longtime friend of mine who has been listening to my preaching for like 10 years online. Uh, had a great conversation with him and his wife. They recently left a church which was, you might say, one of those churches where they're at least moderately devoted to the practice of pragmatism, you know, the idea that we have to do whatever it takes to bring people, uh, to bring the world in. Um, and my friend's wife was telling me that making this change to a, to a different kind of church was very, very difficult for her. It was very difficult for her to become comfortable with a more traditional style of worship. That is, she found it very difficult, challenging even, to enjoy or to feel moved by more traditional worship, hymns and, and things like that. And many in our day and age have the same complaint. This music doesn't do anything for me. But here's when she changed her mind. I found this really interesting. Here's how she came to appreciate a style of worship that didn't get her all emotionally charged. She came to see that worship is not about us. Worship is not about us. Who's it about? It's about God. It's about Jesus. Right, it's about worshiping God. It has an effect on us, but that effect is secondary. Actually, I'd say it's not even secondary. It's maybe, maybe third place. Uh, as, I, as I was just thinking about this this morning, Colossians 3.16. Let me go there real quick. Colossians 3.16. This is why we sing psalms every week. Colossians 3.16 and 17 say this. It says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So the first purpose of worship is Jesus Christ. To, to worship God. The second purpose is to admonish and instruct one another. It is not about us. That's, that's a, a byproduct. That's what we would say is, is a byproduct. That's, that's not our intention of when we worship. It's just something that happens because we start to see what it's really all about. So first and foremost, our worship is about God. And our worship is for God. Secondly, it's for one another. Thirdly, as a byproduct, it's, it has an effect on us. I remember a time when I was a kid and there was a movie that my sister and I uh, had watched. It was kind of one of those silly slasher movies from uh, the 80s. It really wasn't my thing. I, I wasn't crazy about the movie. Uh, it was okay, but it didn't captivate me like it captivated my sister. And one Christmas, this is a true story, one Christmas my sister uh, bought me that movie for Christmas. And after we were done, uh, after our family was done unwrapping presents and everything, she grabbed that movie and she went downstairs into my grandmother's basement. We were at my grandmother's house for, for Christmas. She went down to the basement and she watched that movie all day long. Now, um, we were just kids, uh, but to this day we laugh whenever one of us brings it up. Why? Because it's a, it's a kind of funny way to give yourself a gift, right? I mean... 
buying what you want for somebody else and then taking it as soon as they're not looking. Great idea, I guess. But, you know, when we worship according to our preferences and when we make our worship about what it does for us, we are doing just that. The exact same thing. Except toward God. Worship is all about giving to God what he is worth. That's where the word worship comes from because it sounds awkward to say worth-ship. Worship is declaring what he is worth. He is worth more than we can possibly fathom, isn't he? It's all about him. But the money changers and the priests in the temple in Jerusalem were certainly not worshiping God in a way, in a manner, or with attitudes or with motivations that were pleasing to God. They were worshiping in a way that God would not accept And I understand that to so many in our day and age, this sounds like such a strange concept. We live in a day and age where we view ourselves as the highest authority and in which sola feelings have replaced sola scriptura. Sola feelings. By the way, this is one... Uh, This is one place where the value of the historic creeds and confessions of the church come in very, very helpful. They prevent us from leaning on our own understandings. They prevent us from relying on our own ideas, our own wild imaginations. This is what the London Baptist Confession of 1689 says about acceptable worship. In chapter 22, article 1 of the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. It says, this is the Founders' Translation in the modern English. It says, The light of nature demonstrates that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all. He is just and good and does good to everyone. Therefore, he should be feared, loved, praised, called on, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul and all the strength. But the acceptable way to worship the true God is instituted by him and, is de- and it is delimited by his own revealed will. Thus, he may not be worshipped according to human imagination or inventions or the suggestions of Satan, nor through visible representations, nor in any uh, other way that is not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. And one of the great things that I love about uh, the confession, uh, the historic confessions, is that uh, yes, they are all tried and true, but above and beyond that, they are all based on Scripture. And after each article, when you're, when you're reading through the document, when you're reading through each, uh, each section, the confession will list Scripture to support uh, and, and to provide further research for the reader. Uh, this article, for example, is supported specifically by Jeremiah 10.7, Mark 12.33, Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 32, and Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 to 6. And I would say, uh, I'm just going to pick one of these. I I decided I would just pick one of these texts to look at, uh, but I think it might be the most relevant one, and that is Deuteronomy 12, 32, where God instructs his people, whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to nor take away from it. Now, This article from the Confession also contains one of the strongest possible arguments, I would say, for not worshiping in a way that is is different from that that is prescribed in Scripture. Let me ask you this question. How can you guarantee that if you are doing something that Scripture does not instruct us to do, how can you guarantee that it is not the suggestion of Satan? 
That's a tough one. You can't. You can't. So this underscores the, the, the importance of worshiping in the way that God has instructed. Now, it's really easy for us to sit here and to offer up the Pharisee's prayer. Thank you, God, that we are so awesome. Thank you, God, that we are not like all these other churches. We must understand that, first of all, we are always a work in progress. We are a work in progress, but we must also understand uh, that we must keep um, reforming. We must keep guard over ourselves and keep reviewing where we are and what we're doing and how we're doing things. We're a work in progress. But secondly, we have nothing to boast of. We have absolutely nothing to boast of. Because whatever we might do right, it's, it's only because of God's grace. It's only because of God's grace. If, if we do anything right, if we do anything in a way that's pleasing to God, it's only because, first of all, He granted us understanding of His Word through the power of His Holy Spirit in us. And secondly, He didn't destroy us for doing things wrong. We have no room to boast. No room, no reason to boast in ourselves. None at all. It is grace when we realize, friends, that our worship is not about us. It's not about what we like. It's not about how it makes us feel. Because that is, the reason that this is grace is because it's, it's not a realization that we could possibly come to on our own. It's not a conclusion that any of us would arrive at in our own wisdom. But it's at this point that we must see that there's not only an application for the church as a corporate whole, meaning the, 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 the church overall, what the, the Apostles' Creed refers to as the Holy Catholic Church, meaning the, the church universal, but it's also relevant for each person who is a member individually of the church at an individual level. Because when we say that Jesus is Lord of the temple, and he is the Lord of the temple, we mean, in this, in this context, the context of this passage, that there's a visible, physical, material sense. He, he owns that temple. It's his. But we must never forget that when the, New, uh, when the New Testament epistles speak of a temple, it is in the invisible, spiritual sense. Consider with me, for example, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, sorry, chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. The Holy Spirit breathes these words through Paul's pen. He says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy. And that is what you are. And he'd go on to say this in the 6th chapter, verses 19 and 20. He says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. See, the physical temple, the, the material temple that, that Jesus is entering here, the, the temple from the Old Testament, it wasn't an end in and of itself. It was a picture it was a foreshadowing of, of, a, of a greater reality that was to come. That just as God dwelled in the temple, He now dwells in 
us in His people. And if you are in Christ, if you have put all of your hope and all of your confidence and all of your trust and all of your faith for salvation in Jesus Christ, you are His. You belong to Him. And when I say that you belong to Him, I mean it in the most literal way I can possibly mean. You are His possession. Now we should realize that the Greek word that Paul uses for temple is the word that specifically refers to the actual sanctuary where God's presence was said to dwell as opposed to the the greater temple area in general. But what we need to see is that just as God's uh, physical temple, his house, is holy, you and I must also be holy. And this is a very difficult word, isn't it? It's a word that a lot of people kind of cringe at. It's a word that makes a lot of people very uncomfortable. It's a disparaging word in our culture. We talk about uh, prideful people or, or just devout religious people being holier than thou. But the reason that our culture uses that word, holy, as an insult only reflects how much the natural man hates all the things of God. You and I, are to be holy. We are to be set apart for the purposes of God. We belong to God. We do not belong to ourselves. We are His possession. We do not own ourselves. And this application gives the idea, the concept, the principle of Jesus being Lord of the temple a whole new meaning, doesn't it? Because it means that He alone has the right, He alone has the authority to call every single shot in your life. That everything, every, every decision we make, every aspect of our lives comes under His authority because He owns us completely. You don't have any authority to do anything that Christ does not permit you to do. That's why Paul finishes verse 20 here in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, he finishes with this imperative. He says, therefore, which means what? It means in light of all this stuff that I just established. So let's, let's read it again. Or do you not know that your body is uh, a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price? Therefore, Paul says, glorify God in your body. Because your body is the temple of God. Just as the Israelites were to glorify God in the physical temple, you are to glorify God in His spiritual temple. In your body. They were to have nothing in the temple, the physical temple, that would distract them from worshiping God rightly. And us, you, what might you have that would prevent you from worshiping rightly or would distract you from rightly worshiping God. Because just as Jesus cleanses the physical temple, as soon as He goes into it, He does the same thing in the person who is drawn to faith in Christ through the power and the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the resulting conversion of the individual. He comes in and He doesn't just leave it a mess. He drives things out. He loves us too much to leave us living in a spiritual pigsty. It is in 
his zeal for pure, true, undefiled worship that Jesus cleanses the temple in Jerusalem. And if we are to grow in Christ's likeness, as God promises that we will, it's not like it's an optional thing. It's not like sanctification is something that we can opt into or opt out of. If we're to be like Christ, friends, who are we kidding if we think that we shouldn't also be growing in our zeal for purity, for holiness, for true undefiled worship? I suspect that the thing about pursuing holiness that makes us uncomfortable is the fact that we realize that it's something that we cannot achieve on our own. It's an impossible goal for us to achieve on our own. Our flesh is so weak. It's something, it's a transforming change that must be wrought by the power of the Holy Spirit working within us as He shapes and changes and cleanses our desires and our ambitions and our affections and our values, teaching us to love the things that God loves and also to hate the things that God hates. Oh, how our culture loves to focus on the love of God. And the love of God is so worth treasuring. It's such a beautiful thing, but we must also understand that it's impossible to love without hating. God hates sin. Why? Why does God hate sin? Because he loves holiness. Because he loves purity. He loves righteousness. See, his his love for righteousness is equal in strength to his absolute hatred of sin and unrighteousness. So we must not only learn to love, but we must also learn to love rightly. But we also, while we must learn to love, we also must learn to hate, but to make sure that we're hating rightly, that we're hating first and foremost the sins that we ourselves struggle with so that we don't hate sin hypocritically. Jesus hated what he saw when he came into the temple in Jerusalem, and rightfully so. It was a righteous hatred. And so what did he do? He drove out all the things that were defiling it. He drove out all of the impurities. Why do you think it was, by the way, that nobody uh, tried to stop him? There are more of them than there are of him. And yet, nobody tries to grab him. Nobody tries to, to kill him. Nobody tries to attack him. Why, why do you think that might be? I mean, we read of, we read of times when uh, Jesus would say or do something and people's response would be to, to pick up stones and, and try to kill him, right? So, so why not here? I think the answer is actually very clear. As, as Martin Lloyd-Jones points out, he says, quote, they were made conscious of something of his eternal power and Godhead, end quote. And this is exactly what would happen, by the way, later on in, in John's testimony. If you remember, uh, when, when Jesus is about to be um, arrested, these Roman soldiers come looking for Jesus, uh, and, and he'll say to them, I am he. And what happens? <laughs> they, they go fall, flying and falling backwards. How do you explain that naturalistically? You can't. Why did that happen? I think the same reason. Because they got a sense of his divine power. And Godhead. Something in them sensed his power, his authority. See, just as, as 
Jesus' sheep will hear his voice and follow him, you have to believe that his enemies, when they hear his voice, will flee until his hour comes, which obviously is coming in John. So the fact that nobody attacked Jesus as he cleansed the temple shows us that even unbelievers recognize and fear and yield to his authority. How much more should we, as his people, yield to his authority? Are you his temple? Individually, are you his temple? Does he dwell within you? Have you put your faith in him alone for salvation? Because if you have, he does. And that's a wonderful thing. And if he does, then what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, then glorify God in your body. See, friends, our hearts by nature are filled and defiled by things like selfishness and sin and pride. Our greatest need was to be forgiven of our sin, to have our sin literally taken away from us and laid upon Christ, transferred to him. This is what we call, by the way, and you might want to write this down. If you've never heard this term, this is such an important word. This is what we call the doctrine of imputation. The doctrine of imputation. Remember that because it is actually at the very heart of the gospel. It is the very heart of the gospel. And if you do not understand imputation, you will miss the essence of what the gospel is and what took place on Calvary as Christ hung on the cross. Our greatest need was for God to take our sin away from us, to forgive us, to cleanse us, But the problem is that God can't just ignore sin. All sin incurs a debt. All sin incurs a debt. And that debt must be paid. So it will be paid either by you or it will be paid by someone who qualifies to stand in your place. And there's only one person who qualifies. And that is God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. But that's not all that was required for our forgiveness and our cleansing. That's not all. Also required for our forgiveness is that God's own righteousness be transferred to us. So we needed our sin taken away from us, and we needed somebody else's sin transferred or imputed, there's that word again, imputed to us. And so Jesus was punished in our place, yes. He bore the wrath that we deserve, yes, but he also fulfilled the demands of the law in our place, And this is all part of the doctrine of imputation. We don't have any righteousness to claim for ourselves. Any righteousness that we have has been imputed to us through faith in Christ and Christ alone. His perfect and unblemished righteousness becomes ours. It's transferred to us. Think of it this way. How many of you guys have credit cards? Like everybody? Anybody not have a credit card? Okay, Sam, do you know how credit cards work? You, you, you don't until you have one, trust me. When I was in college, I got my first uh, credit card. When I wasn't a whole lot uh, older than you, Sam, uh, I got my first credit card. And all I had ever seen anyone do with a credit card is use it to buy tons of stuff, right? And so once I got this, this credit card, uh, 
man, I, I was buying clothes, I was charging meals, I, 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 and I wasn't paying any attention at all to how much I was charging. I was, it was like I was completely oblivious to it. I mean, I knew that, that I owed that money, but I just kind of pushed it back and forgot all about it. Uh, you know, I was an 18-year-old with what felt like an unlimited uh, resource of money, uh, of, of spending ability, until the bill came. And when the bill came, I remember thinking to myself, man, what, what have I done? What have I, I done? I, I, I mean, I was, I was literally so ashamed. I was so astonished that I would be so foolish to rack up so much debt in, in one month. In one month. And that's really the same experience that I had when I heard and believed the gospel. And the same is probably true of you. You heard the gospel and suddenly you realized that you had sinned and sinned and sinned and had never even given the slightest thought to the reality that there was a debt that was just adding up, adding up, adding up. And you realized that you couldn't pay that debt. But then God opened your ears to hear the gospel. He opened your eyes to see that Christ freely takes our debt upon Himself. That it, it was transferred to Him. That it's transferred to Him through faith in Him. And the riches of His glorious grace, His very own righteousness, it was all transferred to you. Imputed to you. What a glorious, glorious salvation. What a great God. But that's not the end of the story, is it? That's just the beginning. No, the story is that you and I it goes forever. That we will worship in His presence and God's presence forever around His throne in the future. So we're talking about something that happened before and we're talking about something that happened in the future and here we are in the present. See, when we believed in the gospel, when we believed in Christ, God relieved us from the penalty of sin. He took that away from us. And when we spend eternity in heaven, we'll be removed from the presence of sin. But in the here and now, God is sanctifying us. He is working to remove the power of sin from us. So, justification, God removes the penalty of sin. Sanctification, the here and now, God removes the power of sin. Future, God removes the presence of sin. The question is, Looking at sanctification, does your life bear witness to this reality? In what areas of your life should Jesus come in and drive the wickedness away? What aspect of your life needs a scourge of divine cords? Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, he said, quote, There is nothing more terrible than to be using the means of grace, the house of God, the glories and blessings of the gospel to serve some personal selfish end, end quote. And if we're thinking by, uh, biblically, if we're thinking rightly, we would wholeheartedly say amen. Or as Vody Balcom says, uh, say either amen or ouch, Right? See, the church, overall, the church shouldn't be used to accomplish our own purposes as we see because the church belongs to the Lord for His purposes. But the same is true of you and me, friends. 
We've been purchased at a high cost. We've been purchased with the very blood of Christ. And it is a horrible thing to live our lives as if our lives are all about us, about our dreams, about our ambitions, about our aspirations, about our purposes. So are there things in your life that you're treating that way? Are there things in your life that need to be driven out? Are are, are you abusing or neglecting the ordinary means of grace? When I say the ordinary means of grace, I'm talking about things like prayer, Bible study, um, gathering with the local church regularly, practicing the ordinances, uh, the Lord's Supper and and baptism, um, or evangelizing. I mean, are, are, there, are there ways in which you're abusing or neglecting the glories and blessings of the gospel because you're convinced that there's something more worth living for than that? The cleansing of the temple shows us that God takes two things very seriously. Worship and sin. He takes them seriously. And that when he comes in, Those things will be cleansed. Those things will be cleansed. That applies to the church at large. Again, the the, the Holy Catholic Church, as um, as the Apostles' Creed says, not to be confused with the Roman Catholic Church. But it also applies on an individual level to us, friends. See, we can we can sit here and we can complain and weep about the culture. We can moan and and complain about the the current state of the church or even the culture, but at some point, we must see that we are not called to be part of what the world is doing and how the world is acting and how the world is thinking. We are called to be very different, set apart. That's what it means to be holy, is to be set apart, consecrated. And that starts with us being committed to our own personal growth in sanctification. It starts with a personal commitment to pursuing purity and holiness and to living every aspect of our lives for the glory of God, even if nobody else around us is doing it. See, it's dangerous for the church at large to let worldly ideologies in, but that starts at an individual level. That starts with people allowing worldly philosophies and worldly ideologies to dominate their thinking. And that prevents them from thinking biblically because worldly ideologies are not compatible with a biblical worldview. That's why Paul says to the Colossians, Colossians 2.8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive. How? Through philosophy. And and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. That's why he says to the church at Rome in his time, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's why James said, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. See, these words don't just apply to their respective audiences in the first century. They're serving to this day as a wake-up call, as, as a warning to every Christian. And they've been that for every Christian in history. See, we're all so prone to be conformed to the likeness of the world. 
We're also prone to be double-minded, to have two desires, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the Spirit, and just to be complacent about it, as if we can be spiritual Switzerland and just sit in the middle and say, I'm not picking a side, I'll just let one side win, whatever in the moment. See, we're also prone to mix biblical thinking with worldly ideologies, to syncretize our worldview and our religion But just as one drop of poison in a glass full of water makes the whole glass of water poisonous, allowing even a small amount of worldly thinking to mix in with a biblical worldview is absolutely disastrous. Why does it matter? Why does it even matter, you might be asking. Because Jesus, as we see here in this text, Jesus has a zeal, a holy and righteous zeal for purity in his temple. And you are that temple if you're in Christ. So you must either confront your sin or you will be conformed to it. There is no middle ground. There is no neutrality when it comes to sin. Nobody is a spiritual Switzerland. If you are complacent about your sin, you are equally going to be complacent about holiness. It's the same kind of balance that we see with God's love and his hatred. What you love, you must hate the antithesis of, and vice versa. So if you're complacent about your sin, you will also be complacent about purity and holiness. And the truth is, friends, that sin is worth waging war against. Sin deprives you of the joy that we should all have in Christ. But sin is a cruel master that will never be satisfied. It will always want and demand more and more. And think about your life. Think about how sin has deprived you of joy. Think about the way you know that you need to love. You want to love. And yet... Uh, you're just kind of in a bad mood. Somebody cut you off in traffic or, or somebody said something rude to you at work and so you'd just kind of rather be left alone. You know that as a Christian, you must worship God in the way that he has instructed to worship and that you must worship him as he desires. But your heart feels cold and your heart feels distant and indifferent and you could really use some music that would just pep you up a little bit. You want to pursue and grow in holiness and sanctification. And you know that the Scriptures instruct us to pursue the holiness and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord, Hebrews says. But you step back and you examine your life and you realize all you do is fall short constantly. And so you long for eternal rest from the daily war with sin. And the solution to all of this is to find our joy in Christ and not the things of this world. The solution to all of this is looking to the one who is Lord of the temple, the one who cleansed the temple, our God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Ask Him to help. Ask Him to give you more joy in Him. Ask Him to cleanse you. And ask Him again and again. It is His will that you, as His people, it is His will that you would be purified and sanctified, set apart, 
holy so you can know, you can guarantee that if you really ask that prayer, if you really pray that prayer, it's a dangerous prayer. He'll answer it because his desire is for you to be holy. And if you will ask him for help, how would he deny you? He wouldn't. What good father would give his son a stone when he asks for bread? How much more goodness would God give you if you prayed and asked? He will discipline you, I have to warn you. If you are his, if you're his temple, he will discipline you as a loving father disciplines his children, not out of wrath, not out of anger, out of love, out of a desire for what is best for you. He loves you more than you love yourself. He wants what's best for you more than you want what's best for yourself. And friends, there is, there's grace for our war with sin, yes. But I urge you with all of the authority of Scripture to support me. Do not abuse His grace. Do not abuse the grace that has been given to you. It is not a license to sin freely. The provision of the new covenant for each believer is indeed so glorious. It is grace upon grace. But central to our understanding of what the new covenant is, is that God has given us a new heart. A heart with new desires. A heart that will want to obey God. And His presence dwelling within us will strengthen us and will guide us to do just that. More and more and more. And we won't see the finish line on this side of glory. But we have the promise that we will. On the other side. I'm not saying that you will be sinless. What I am saying is that all of us should sin less. I'm saying that if you're in Christ, your life should bear witness to the reality that God dwells within you and that He is cleansing the temple, that He is leading you to greater purity, to greater holiness, to greater love and devotion for God, for greater hatred of what shouldn't be there, greater hatred of sin and anything that defiles His temple. Listen, even the strongest, even the most mature believer struggles with sin. But he nevertheless will grow in his hatred for sin. And he knows that God, who is faithful and just, will cleanse him if he will confess his sin before God. And he knows that God began a good work in him and that that work will be completed. Not on the sinner's power, but by God's power. To to bring about change in our lives, to sanctify us, to transform us. And I hope you see the beauty of this, that the Lord Jesus who loves you and who freely paid the ransom for your sin loves you too much to leave you living in sin, to leave you as a captive to sin, to leave you living in a spiritual pigsty. And so therefore we can know that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So let us cling to that promise and let us commit to God's temple being purified regardless of the cost in order that Jesus who purchased us and who owns us 
and who is the Lord of the temple would be greatly glorified and exalted in our lives. Let's pray. Our most gracious God, in the silence of our hearts, we confess to you that we have sinned against you more times than we can count. We have not loved the things that you love. We have not hated the things that you hate. We have sinned against you in what we have done. We've sinned against you in what we haven't done. And so we thank you for Christ. Thank you for the grace that we have, the glorious, beautiful, wonderful, overabundant grace that we have in Christ Jesus. We pray that he would reign supreme in his temple and that anything that inhibits us or distracts us from being pure and holy and set apart for his purposes, we pray that it would be driven out. Thank you for doing so graciously, Lord Jesus. We know that all we deserve is your wrath, and yet you have shown us such incredible love. So we pray that our lives would reflect the reality of your indwelling presence that these temples, our bodies, would be continually cleansed by your grace, but also that you would drive away any sin that ensnares us and that you would be glorified for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.